Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Heroku in the Wild series. Hello and welcome to Codish. I'm developer advocate Chris Castle, and today we have Jonathan Lister Parsons, the CTO from Pensionbee. Hi. Uh, hi, Jonathan. Welcome. Can you uh, share a little bit about yourself? I certainly can. Hi, Chris. Nice to be here. I'm Jonathan Lister Parsons. Uh, I, I work at Pensionbee um, as the CTO here. Uh, so we like to say we're the the UK's um, most loved pension provider. Um, which is uh, is quite a claim in an industry that is is not known for attracting love. So we've yeah. been we've been going for four or five years, and we're really trying to do something different in pensions and give people you know kind of a twenty first century experience around a pension rather than a nineteenth century experience. For U.S. listeners, when you say is in in the U.K., the pension is like the your uh, personal retirement fund is that that correct like your 401k yeah okay um so typically in the uk you get a pension with each job and unlike your us uh, listeners you you do tend to leave your pension um wherever it's sat when you move jobs so uh people now uh, have around 11 jobs in their lifetime which could mean 11 pensions um or even more okay. if you've opened up one on the side for yourself and mm-hmm. that's a real problem if you're trying to sort of assess, you know, do I have enough money for my for my retirement? You know, what does my long term saving plan look like? Uh, yeah. and, and so that sort of fragmentation is the main consumer problem that we're solving here in the UK. Um, our main service to people is that we effectively we deal with very old fashioned complex industry on your behalf. And we go and get all your old pensions and move them into a single pension pot that you can then manage on your phone, on a website, whenever you want. And, um, you know, we give you good customer service, personal service, which again is slightly unusual in the financial services sector here. Uh, and re- <laughs> yeah. really, really just trying to make pensions feel like any other fintech. And so the way, the way that you, from what I understand, the way that you do that is with, with technology, um, as you know, you're a, sure. a Heroku customer, Salesforce customer. Um, the way you do that is with technology and kind of um, efficient use of, of technology or technology to make the business more efficient, um, which maybe seems obvious for a lot of us in the technology industry, but it's, it's, it's not applying technology to old um, uh, industries or big complex companies or big complex problems, um, especially when there's money involved, it can be, can be complicated. Yes, yeah, so I think that's right. That particularly in financial services, uh, I think before we came along, you know, we were we were probably the the first company to to launch a pension product built entirely as a you know as a cloud native startup, you know, kind of greenfield approach, um, not as they say, not burdened by any legacy, and that's that's quite unusual um, to couple that with a relentless focus on the consumer rather than something that was. Uh, you know, like a B2B service, which you know, a lot of the financial sector is here. And also this is, this is another thing that uh, it's worth saying for not only for your US listeners, but also for people um, who 
who are either in the UK or have a similar pension si- situation to the UK, because um, it's, it's not immediately obvious. But you you can't just walk up to a big pension company here and, and open a pension in lots of cases. You have to have had that sold to you through a financial advisor or through some other sort of intermediary. And, mm-hmm. and that means that these companies are focused on you know, sort of pension trustees or big employers or, or small employers as their customer. And then the people who are actually saving the money, those are not, you know, they don't have that one-to-one relationship with the pension provider in the same way. They're not, they're not exposed to um, the feedback from those customers directly, or at least yeah. not as much, not as directly. And, and so right. they're not optimizing for the consumer experience in the same way. That's a good point. Let's get into that a little bit, a little bit later, but I wanted to kind of start our conversation with a quote that you had used in uh, a a conference talk that you did at QCon London. I think it was back in the end of February or early March of this year that said, technology is crystallized knowledge. And I'm wondering if you can uh, explain what that means to you. Yeah, I I use that phrase quite a lot and and I wish that I could claim credit for it, but it's actually a friend of mine called Chris Sugden. Um, who's uh, at the moment, he's a, a product manager at, at Virgin Media. Um, but I believe he was at TripAdvisor the first time he said that to me. And what he was talking about, and what I've certainly taken from that, is this idea that no technology exists without human beings creating it. If you look at any technology, you know, even probably back to, you know, say fire or stone tools, um, mm-hmm, all the way yeah. up to computers and International Space Station, they're all the the composite input of you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of, of people's trial and error and, you know, lessons learned and and their their individual knowledge and perspective. And it all comes together and then it and then it's crystallized and it can be replicated. And th- and that's kind of a beautiful thing about technology is that once you've once you've encoded the solution to a problem into technology, you know, whether that's software or hardware, it's something that you, you know, you can choose to replicate. And you know we're, we're fortunate that we work in a in an industry that where software is predominant and where replicating that technology is extremely cheap, um, and so you can spread all of that crystallized knowledge, all that embedded know-how uh, around the world, you know, very quickly at very low expense. And that you know that to me has always seemed like a very exciting uh, <laughs> facet of working in this industry. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's like I mean, and it applies to business, right? In that knowledge can be crystallized into technology and and kind of used more efficiently and replicated like you said in a business context but it also applies to like the open source world where all this knowledge that people have is is shared out and turned into software and then shared even more or replicated even more maybe as open source software than it might be um, just within an individual business or individual industry yeah, I felt that effect, um, you know, really personally very early on in my technology career because my first sort of professional role in technology was was at BT and I was part of a unit that was um, working under the head of open source, if you like. And we had a, a remit to effectively go outside the walls of BT and, you know, work in the in open source communities and do things that effectively made B- BT look good and, and a good place to work, I suppose. What I found was that people working in open source, indirectly or perhaps very centrally, they all shared this 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 amazing openness of 
spirit and this enthusiasm for learning and sharing what they knew. And that was obviously very, very different to the corporate world where information was something that you you guarded and that was your yeah. the thing that you made your your money off. You know, then once yes. once you sort of realize that everything uh, you know, kind of on the internet is built on layers upon layers upon layers of, of open source software and how crucial that is to the functioning of the modern world, you go, wow, businesses are probably blind to how much openness and sharing they are genuinely built on top of, especially as software right. becomes more and more important in the economy. And and for me, you know, there's something weird about that, something that doesn't sit quite right, because it's clear that it's it's the sharing underneath and the open source technology underneath that's that's enabled so much of what we think of as the modern economy, um, and and perhaps not what some of the people yeah. who you know are the, the titans of industry might perceive to be their you know their brilliant business genius that's <laughs> actually changed the world. Yeah, it's an interesting. I I agree. I think about that a lot. Also, the balance between the need for for healthy a healthy open source um, ecosystem and community, um, the the historical kind of role that that has played in the technology industry, and clearly become you know very very important despite Microsoft's uh, not current but past attempts to you know wipe out the what I think bomber or someone called like the scourge of open source <laughs> um, it's, it's clearly you know becoming much much more adopted um, the concept of open source yeah there was a really great way of thinking about the role of open source versus you know say commercial software um, mm-hmm. that an old uh, contact of mine at bt called jp rangaswamy um, he's he's been a, a thought leader in kind of enterprise it for a really long time and he had okay. this this really memorable model which was that if you had a problem that was generic, you know, how do I make a, a web server save, serve web pages, for example, then you should you should reach for open source software. And that was where it really, um, you know, that was its sweet spot. And then if you had something that was a problem that was specific to your industry, then you should look for a commercial piece of software because there's going to be a company making a living selling a solution to that problem, you know, to you and all of the people in your industry. And then if you have yeah. a problem that is specific to your business, that's when you want to own the IP and build that in-house because mm. nobody else has that problem. So you're probably best placed to to fix it, to solve it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think about that model all the time, you know, when making decisions about, you know, should we invest time in solving a problem or is it better for us to go and look for a commercial solution, even if that means that, you know, we might have to, sort of hold our nose a bit and get something that's only 90% what we want. So you shared a few stories during your, your QCon conference talk that kind of like illustrated the points you, you wanted to share, the points you were making. And I think the, the, the first one or the topic of the first one was, was about culture, like getting into culture. So ultimately uh, you transitioned like from talking about technology to the importance of culture. Yeah, how can, how can tools help improve culture or make make culture better at a company or in an organization in general i I guess i probably want to start by you know it's probably rehashing one of the points that i made about tools in in the first place um, and how they relate to culture because i see i guess the culture of an organization as being the most impactful factor that determines the success of that organization yeah And, and that's not 
an uncontroversial thing to say in some respects for anybody who's probably who's worked inside an organization that has a really good culture and someone who's worked in an organization that's that's not had a good culture i think they would be able to understand why i would say that yeah it's not controversial but but it's not easy right to do it's not immediately obvious yeah but you know the thing is that i i kind of try and keep in mind you know a lot of the time this this tension between culture being the behavior of a group of people and and that leading to the successful outcome that you want your business to 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 have or or indeed you know charity or third sector organization or any other sorts of grouping of human beings um, trying to do something coordinated so there's the tension between that which you know is fighting against this kind of history of well, I suppose in the modern day, we talk about the culture wars and, and people talk about zero-sum thinking. And, you know, when you look across um, certainly the media, you don't see a world that's sort of defined by a very progressive thinking and a very progressive culture. You know, we're still torn between primeval instincts and mm-hmm. the memory of, of times of uh, scarcity, whereas the other side of my experience around technology, which is where I think this tension comes in. The other side of that experience is is massive abundance. You know, so technology that allows you to create the modern economy and it has, you know, vastly um, changed the face of the planet and, and changed the quality of life that we experience and, and continues to do so and continues to improve itself, you know, in a way that that culture doesn't really. And I think that's something that, you know, I, certainly in my conference talk, I was spending the first half of the the talk kind of d- digging into this and and saying look you know as as people in an organization that's that's driven by technology and that, that tries to use it to you know create positive consumer outcomes ultimately we've got to be very aware that we shouldn't focus too much on the technology as an end in itself because actually it's the culture of the organization that's going to determine whether we're successful or not and therefore you know in my role I've got to look at well, how is technology best serving the culture of the organization such that the people can can serve the goals of the organization. So it's maybe maybe the better yeah the better question is not how can technology improve culture. It's like if the if our goal is to create a culture and create behaviors, you know, such that yeah. some better end state is is our goal is like what we're kind of moving towards. What is technology's role in improving culture and and shaping behavior for, you know, longer term positive, positive goals, whether that be profit for a company or equality for different racial groups or something like that. Well, I think one of the stories I really like to tell is around um, our transparency around customer service. So, you know, lots of organizations say, oh yeah, we really pride ourselves on having great customer service. And maybe they measure that in some way and they may, might talk about that, you know, to a committee once a quarter or once a one month potentially. But that's not really something that's then, you know, kind of reflected back to the people who are, who are actually providing that customer service in, in a real time sense. And so what, what we've tried to do is, you know, we have a few different customer touch points where they can leave us reviews. So we're very proud of our, of our, uh, trust pilot score which i think is around 4.7 out of 5 at the moment which you know is the best in in the pension industry and why we why we say we're the most loved pension company in the uk 
we get a lot of reviews there, but also with our mobile app, we get reviews on the, the Google Play Store, on the Apple App Store. So what, what we do is we funnel all of this information um, back into Slack in a feedback and reviews um, channel in, in Slack. So I type in a review for Pension B in like um, Trustpilot or something like that, and it automatically shows up in a Slack channel somewhere? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So that makes it immediately visible to the people who are working in the customer success team. You know, often if somebody's had a really good experience, they'll name their their personal account manager. So we call mm-hmm. those beekeepers. And often they'll be named in a review, which is obviously great for the the person who's named. But, you know, they'll have had people that have helped on the, the account and um, often, you know, credit will be given to the other people that have helped on their on their account. So, you know, that's a nice way to sort of celebrate those little wins. And obviously, you yeah. know, over thousands of reviews that all kind of adds up and, and a lot of stuff kind of comes in on a daily basis. So a lot of people are seeing the effect of the work that they've done. And because it's yeah. immediate, you're seeing it from customers who they have a chance of remembering the interaction with. It's a great feedback loop that a lot of companies don't get. You know, they they have the interaction, the transaction with a customer, um, and then they don't hear from the customer or hear from that that person um, very often because customers are. I have found at least that like with building software, when your users are happy, you don't hear from them much, but when they're upset, you do hear from them a lot. And so there's this. Um, this bias in the, the yeah. information that you receive. Although that does open up the second part of my story, which is when people are unhappy and they leave a bad review, those reviews aren't sort of magically filtered out of the Slack channel. So they still show up in the Slack channel. And what's really interesting, you know, again, thinking about technology supporting culture and culture being the behavior that you want. When we get a one-star review, for example, you know, which does happen because some people have their they don't get their expectations met. We drop a ball or something. They come in and they leave a one-star review. That isn't something that we wait until the end of the quarter to deal with. That's something that immediately lights a fire underneath a group of people to resolve that issue. So, you know, usually it's a group of people that come together around the issue that might include, you know, the beekeeper, so the account manager for that customer, somebody that, you know, works as a customer resolution specialist, uh, somebody from maybe compliance, if there's an issue around, you know, the, the, the sort of the nature of the product or something that's gone wrong, somebody in the tech team to try and help diagnose what's gone wrong technically. And what you end up with is this, you know, kind of little crack team of um, individuals who you know, create a timeline, figure out what's gone wrong. How do we communicate with the customer? How do we resolve the issue that they're experiencing? And that sort of immediate feedback and immediate action that then leads to analysis of what can we do to stop this happening again in the future, that's the kind of incremental improvement loop that you know management theorists love to talk about. But that wasn't something that we did because we thought we need an incremental improvement loop, uh, you know, a constant feedback loop. We did it because we wanted to create that connection between the people in the customer success team and the customers that they're serving. Yeah. So what's really great is when a customer responds to that by going, oh, thank you so much. You know, I feel listened to. That's great. Yeah, You've been right. able to resolve that so quickly. And then they go back on Trustpilot and they change their one-star review, you know, into a three, a four, and sometimes even a five-star review. So you can, yeah. you can imagine the impact that has on the, the people inside the company that have dealt with that case. You've like taken the person who, who is potentially unhappy and potentially turn them into someone who's more 
more happy or or more maybe more likely to sing the praises of of your company to others than than otherwise because yeah. you want, you've surprised them kind of which is maybe a bad thing in this world that our, our expectation for customer service from financial services maybe is is really low and we're we, you're able to to surprise people but yeah that's cool yeah I, I think I think it you know people are used to seeing maybe Instagram videos of somebody really going the extra mile in say retail you know somebody yeah. who I don't know, drove down the highway to deliver a meal to somebody whose delivery order got screwed up or something. You know, like that, right, that sort, right. of, sort of Christmas friendly Instagram content that hits the pages, of, <laughs> hits the media. Um, but yeah, you, you know, you, you don't expect that in financial services. And I think when that does happen, I think that helps to shift expectations, which is for the good. Like there's no reason why financial services should be any different to any other industry in fact it's you know it's more central and more important to your livelihood in some respects so you you should demand great service yeah no that i mean this actually like kind of brings us towards another topic or another story that you told in your in your talk which was this kind of like expectations for consumer apps you know like your your iphone app or or whatever android app for like the, the fun ones that are kind of like personal life versus those ones that are more like serious, maybe the business tools mm-hmm. in, in your life and how we have such like a, kind of a mismatch and expectations for these consumer tools, which we expect to be like perfect and glossy and beautiful and easy to use versus like the expense in entry tool or the, the pension, you know, uh, rebalancing tool or something like that. First of all, do you do you see that mismatch or that juxtaposition? And second, are you guys trying to to fix that or make that better? Yeah, that's a whole other podcast just just by itself, or maybe even a podcast series just by itself. I mean, I co- I think of it as the sort of productivity status quo, you know, in terms of people's expectations with their work their work tools. You know, you you have this amazing stuff on your on your iPhone or Android, and you know you using it and you walk through the doors of the office and then suddenly all of those expectations, you leave them at the door and you sit down in front of your business systems, which, you know, most white collar workers, that's what they're doing. They're, they're in front of a computer all day. And yep. what they're using isn't made by people with empathy for, uh, you know, goals and use cases and personas and, and all the th- things that, you know, if you're a startup building a, consumer app or a consumer product you know if you're not thinking about those things then you're not just not going to be successful they're built by organizations who are often motivated by probably different things and they're procured by people who are using lists that don't contain those sorts of factors there's going to be a cause and effect here but the ultimate end point of this is that you know people are using tools that are too complex and confusing and rather than helping them do their job more effectively, they're quite often being an impediment to doing their job well. You know, that kind of corporate mishmash of different business apps that do part of a job and you have this problematic manual process to sort of deal with the the weirdnesses because two systems don't properly interact. You know, those sorts of things are familiar to anybody that's ever worked in a corporate you know, uh, one of the things that continues to just fascinate me is this this idea of the productivity paradox, where we've had decades of investment in the in IT, in business IT, and you know, whilst we can feel the improvements in our personal lives, you, know, you measure the productivity statistics in in 
knowledge work. And it's like the investment in computing didn't happen. Right. <laughs> so where's that all gone? You know, where's all that crystallized knowledge I was talking about? You know, it's all gone into this stuff, into this software. Why are people not more productive? Why are they not 10 times or 100 times more productive than they were, uh, you know, in the 1970s when they were using, I don't know, like the Rolodex and maybe some basic spreadsheet yeah. software? You know, I think about management consulting in the 1970s. Is it really that different now? Probably in some ways, yes, it is. But in a lot of ways, it's not going to be. Mm. And, I, and I just right. can't help thinking that a lot of this is down to, you know, the sort of really shabby corporate tooling that people get given um, and expected to make the most of. Yeah, not to toot my own horn, I guess. But like, this is one of the reasons why I was a fan of Heroku before I joined mm. and then and then really uh, was excited to join the Heroku product because it's unusual, as you said, I think to find a tool that has not only decided that it's important to focus on a better interface between that human and the, and the software, but also then be able to do it and execute on it and, and actually make um, kind of intuitive user interfaces, make a better user experience. It's not, it's not easy. And I guess like to your point and to like kind of what I'm hearing from from what PensionBee does, it's not just the software. It's how the uh, I think you call them beekeepers, like how the how the, yeah. the humans also interact with with customers and like what their what their motivations or, or um, uh, kind of incentives are as as employees. It's the whole process. We are, we're embedded in the pension industry and, and that's an industry where, uh, you know, I imagine broken processes are, are just, you know, a daily occurrence. I mean, one of the things that we did as a not a publicity campaign, but you know, we certainly surfaced <laughs> this visibly at one point. It was this campaign around how it can take you know six months for you to move your pension from your old provider to a different provider, and yeah. you compare that to a current account. You know, there's a there's a current account switch guarantee. Um, you know, so when I moved my, I moved my current account to Starling Bank last December, and that was something that they did for me. And it, it, you know, completed within a few working days and was sort of hitch free. And mm-hmm. there's a guarantee around that. And I just thought, well, that's how it should be. And I think a lot of people, you know, they, they're going to have experienced that more than they will have experienced moving a pension because it's so difficult. Yeah. And uh, anyway, our campaign was that moving your pension can take six months. You know, you can fly to Mars in that time. So we had this kind of cute graphic <laughs> of... Um, you know, a little green alien on a on Mars, you know, in the pension BB flying all the way from Earth. And it was just this kind of cute idea. Uh, but I think it just helps to illustrate that, you know, as an industry, pensions is something that's that's far removed from from what people are now learning is the new normal around financial services. One of one of the other things that um I took a photo of for the QCon talk was one month's worth of inbound uh, post. So the pension industry is a is an industry that loves to send post and loves to receive post, and we have to uh, archive everything that we get. So every month we send off a big pile of boxes to uh, our offsite storage, and I took a photo of the uh, the pile of the most recent month's post, and it was taller than the person who was you know managing the process of getting that stuff archived, you know quite significantly taller, and. There's so many problems with having that much paper floating around, you know, from inefficiency due to the fact that you can lose things, you know, even with the best will in the world, to the fact that it can be destroyed easily. Uh, you know, it's just, you don't yeah. want to be running really important 
processes on paper anymore when there's a perfectly good digital alternative. Not to mention the environmental impact of all that paper and then transporting all that paper. Yeah, so we have a policy that we won't, you know, we, we digitize at the perimeter. So all that mm-hmm. post that does come in immediately gets, gets scanned. So we're not operating any paper-based processes within the perimeter of Pension B. And we'll only produce paper if we need to send paper to a pension provider because they won't accept something digital. But financial services, healthcare, like like the, the those two, act, at least in the U.S., are, are you know a little bit more slower moving, much more cautious. Um, and so some industries or some companies still need that signed piece of paper from from a customer mm. or from someone. You shared something that maybe seems simple, but I think is actually an innovation in in the industry, and many other companies or industries could benefit from it. Can you can you share what what you guys built and and how you use it? Yes, yeah. I, I think you must be talking about our uh, signature bot that's called Army. Yes. So I've talked to you about, I've given you a picture of a pension industry that loves paper. And another thing that they, they, they do enjoy is asking customers to sign documents. Now, personally, I really don't like having to deal with paper in my personal life. And mm-hmm. right back at the beginning of the business, when a pension provider would ask us to get a customer to sign a document just to give us some details about their pension policies. So not even making any transfers at this point. We used to just deal with that, uh, you know, sort of just take it on the chin and put something in the post and send it to the customer and pray that the customer would do something with that and send it back to us. But I know I wouldn't. I just, I leave that (laughs) in an envelope at the bottom of a pile of an open post like yep. so many people and nothing would happen. And so you can imagine what was happening to the conversion rates around that part of the product. Mm-hmm. What, what we've done in the spirit of removing anything that's kind of awkward and old fashioned from the customers, from the customer's experience. So when they sign up with us, they, they give their signature with their finger uh, on their phone. And then we apply that to any documents that need their, signature using um, essentially a pen holding robot that we call army and it just you know takes literally a fountain pen and just draws the signature on at the bottom of the page and then when we send that to the provider you know we do all of the post you know we do the, the hard annoying bit droop down to the post office and put it in the put it in the letterbox the provider gets what they want which is a document signed with the customer signature in ink and the customer gets what they want which is a hassle-free instant digital process I want that for everything. Any, anything I need to sign or any piece of paper I need to send, I want this. <laughs> this is something that celebrities and politicians use. Uh, so Donald Trump will have one of these. Ah, right. Because uh, yeah. he's not signing everything that goes through his office. And, yeah. you know, uh, so there was a famous case in, in the UK, uh, Gordon Ramsay, who you might know from Hell's Kitchen. So he, he got in a spat with, I think it was his father-in-law, because his father-in-law had signed him up to a lease using this signature printer. And then Gordon uh, Ramsay said, oh, I don't want it. And the court judged that the signature was binding because, you know, this machine carried the authority to, to do that. Interesting. So we'll, and we'll put a little um, animated GIF or, or picture of ARMY in the show notes so you folks can see ARMY in action. Uh, ARMY ahead, yeah. not being the military reference, but actually uh, it, it means like an arm. Yeah, yeah. So it's A-R-M-I-E. But we have it on pensionb.com slash ARMY. 
So slash okay. A-R-M-I-E. Because, you know, if people ever question it, we want to be able to say, look, here it is. This is how it works. It's something that yep. we're, we're proud of as an innovation, not something that we're sort of trying to, to hide. Let's finish out with one thing that, that you said in your talk, which was happy team equals happy customers, um, which maybe seems super obvious or really obvious to people, but it's not obvious to every company. And also maybe more, more importantly, it's not easy to execute or to make happen. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like what's, what's that mean? Yeah. Why is that important to to you um, and your, your team and your people? Well, so it is really important, you know, like many companies we have, we have kind of company values. And the one that I think is, is kind of at the, the middle or at the heart of them all is, is the value of love. So slightly unusual for a company to have a value of love. But one of the things that, that, that makes us true to that is that we, we try and manage for the happiness of our employees. So, you know, we do care about things like their productivity, for example, but we really, really care about those customers, you know, having a great experience and, you know, leaving those great reviews and referring pension B to their friends. And, you know, we believe that if we have a team of happy individuals, both creating the, the, the business, the products and, and serving those customers, that that's just going to lead to a happier set of customers overall. So we really optimize for managing, the ha- managing for the happiness of our employees. Uh, everybody gets a happiness manager when they, when they join, um, which is often the line manager, but not always. And yeah. every six to eight weeks, they have a happiness meeting, which is reversing the dynamic of the typical catch up that you have with your manager. You know, normally mm. when you're talking about talking to your managers, you know, there's a, there's a undertone of performance management, essentially. And yep. when you're performance managing somebody, you're usually saying, what are you doing for the company? Whereas when you're happiness managing, you're saying, you know, what can the company be doing for you to better mm-hmm. support you in doing, uh, you know, a great job and feeling and feeling happy about that. So it really switches the dynamic around. And it means that we have sort of different quality conversations about different things that opens up what you can sort of bring to the workplace so that people feel like there isn't this, um, I suppose, duality between, you know, the them that's at home and the them that's at work. Yeah, that's great. There are a lot of companies, I think, that try to do that, but maybe kind of just at a, maybe they only hit a superficial level where Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to get a a coffee machine or we're going to, you know, do this one event or something like that. Mm. But when you have a specific people um, whose like kind of entire role or entire like reason for being employed is like, and their metrics, you know, they're measured on like team happiness. Um, it changes that it goes deep. It may make sure that like something more meaningful is created as opposed to like kind of just one off like team bonding, quick team bonding things, and then kind of forget about it. Um, and not really keep focusing on team happiness or human happiness or employee happiness. I mean, I'm sure there's like been business like MBA studies or case studies or things like that about this, but it still surprises me that that like corporate America in general has not kind of fully embraced this, that like, you know, at the ultimately you said happy customers, happy team equals happy customers, but ultimately then like happy customers equals business success. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't invent that. You know, that's, that, yeah. that is out of, you know, some management speak book. It's just that I suppose 
the way you choose to implement that or whether you choose to believe it or not, you know, that, that is specific to the organization and yeah. you, know, you make it personal. Well, great. That's all we have for today's episode of Codish. Thanks very much, Jonathan, for joining us and sharing some of your, your wisdom about combining business success with happiness. Um, it's definitely been a smile inducing episode for me. So thanks for, for sharing. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.